Hey everybody, it's Dr. Tim and Hillary for another Dr. Tim's Aquatics podcast. We're going to the quote mailbox and answering <laughs> your questions. How are you doing this morning, Hillary? I'm doing good. How about you? Doing well. Doing well. Have my coffee. New new office chair. All Ooh, fancy. Fancy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fancy. Fancy. So you're we're ready. I've got a whole list full of questions. We got a bunch this month. Well, then let's jump right into it. All right. So first off, can I mix dead and live sand to save money? Will that impact my cycle? The answer is yes, you can mix dead and live sand. Um, Now, the impact to your cycle. Mm -hmm. I have found that very few to know none live sand actually have nitrifying bacteria in them. They have heterotrophic bacteria, which the heterotrophs are back the bacteria that break down the organics. So they're not really helping, you know, they're not ammonia nitrite oxidizers. Um, they add a little bit of material, organic material. Some people believe you need a little bit of organic material to cycle the tank faster. Um, truthfully, I've never done a test comparing side by side. Uh, I do know from experience that using a ton of live sand can kind of delay the cycle. If the sand is old, if you get your live sand and it's in the bag and it's green or you open it up and it stinks, you probably don't really want to put that in your tank. And I think we've mentioned that because that's been sitting out too long. You need to rinse that. So quick, the answer is yes, you can mix it together and no, it's not going to uh, negatively impact your cycle. Yep, exactly. I like that. Use your nose. I feel like you're right. We have talked about that before. I think um, whether or not, like, how do I know? Somebody asked about like, is one of the Dr. Tim's products still good? And your answer was go ahead and smell it if it smells bad. Yeah, it's it's if it smells bad, and I've had people say, hey, I opened up this bag of sand, it stunk, and I dumped it right in there. What's wrong? My water's cloudy and everything's a mess. <laughs> well, maybe your nose told you at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> the nose knows. Exactly. All right. So next question is, I'm having an issue with phosphate and nitrate imbalance. Phosphates are 0.01, nitrates are 22. Do you know why this might be happening? And it gives a couple of information or get some facts. So it's a 350 gallon tank, um, a 60 gallon refugium. It's got hair algae and they're using a large skimmer on it. And that's about the information that we've got. Well, I'm not sure when, when you say an imbalance, what, what a balance would be. Um, but phos- phosphate is almost always going to be significantly lower than nitrate just because phosphate is what every organism, bacteria, algae, just everything in your tank wants. So it get, it's, gets consumed quickly. And several organisms have what are called luxury consumption, which basically they can consume more than they use right now. They accumulate it because it's such a necessary 
uh, nutrient that they'll store it for use later on, um, especially when it comes to phosphate, nitrate, not too much. So with the hair algae, probably a lot of other things, you've just, I mean, the imbalance is due to the chemistry and the biology, because the other thing is that phosphate's quite sticky. It'll stick to rocks. It'll stick to organic material. It'll stick to lots of different things. And that's why it's always so much lower. Uh, to get things back in balance, what one should do is uh, remove, physically remove as much algae and organics as you can, siphon cleaning the uh, substrate, try to get some water movement to remove any material that's trapped inside the nooks and crannies of the live rock. Um, use bacteria to degrade that. And then the values, the, the nitrates should come down um, and the phosphate probably pretty much say the same. Um, studies have shown that the majority of phosphate in your aquarium is actually in the organic form. And this is the same in the ocean. In the ocean, about 98% or more of the available phosphate is in the organic form. No test kit available to a hobbyist measures organic phosphate. So um, just because your kit is saying that your inorganic phosphate is low doesn't mean that you don't have a lot of phosphate in the aquarium is just in a form that you can't measure. So basically maintenance, anytime your nutrients are like that, it's, it's maintenance. Uh, you need to get the organics out and the algae out and uh, better water flow and more balance between the amount of feeding. And as always uh, try to get some more bacteria in the water column by not over skimming. Yes. Yes. And we've talked about that on a couple of other podcasts. So if you are the person that has asked this question and you're interested in learning more, send us a message. I'll be happy to send you the links for those podcasts that we talked about that stuff in. Right. And one thing is we've always said, put your skimmer on a timer. That phosphate's being removed somehow. If you want your phosphate to get up a little bit, to have the bacteria working a little bit faster and better, Put your skimmer on a timer. You do not need to skim 24-7. Nope. All right. Moving on. This person says, I've been using the pearls relatively successfully for the last year. Nitrate has stayed roughly 25. I cleaned the bead reactor with roughly 1,350 milliliters of pearls in it. The nitrate has crept up to over 50 over the last few weeks, and the phosphate is 0 0.06. There was no chlorinated water used. The beads were submerged in tank water for 20 to 30 minutes while it was being cleaned. There's been no additional biological load during this time. Why is the nitrate rising? Would redosing with the skimmer off for three hours or so with waste away be helpful? And then we have a third question to this one. If so, um, one milliliter per 10 gallons daily for two to three weeks, would that be acceptable? Okay, let's, let's answer the last two. <laughs> There's no uh, set 
easy, repeatable dosage of, yes, if you do this for three hours, this is going to happen. And that's because this is biology. Every fish tank is different, different amounts of load, different filtration. So different bacterial numbers, different organics. That's why, you know, one mil per 10 gallons every three weeks. The instructions we give are guidelines. What you should never do is exceed what we say, which is overdose. But we can't tell you, oh, yeah, if you do one mil per 10 gallons every day, that for three weeks, things are going to be perfect. Um, it's just impossible. And that's one reason we developed the waste away gels, because you don't want to overdose the bacteria, but constant slow dosing, just a little bit of bacteria all the time is the best way to do things because if you get a burst of organic food, you get a burst of fish food, you get a burst of waste because you know the, the excretion of fish is not constant. There's a time period after they eat that there's a big sludge of ammonia or uh, fish poop that, that comes into the water that needs to be taken care of. So dosing a small amount 24-7 is really the way to go. And that's the whole idea behind the gels. And the first part of the question, by turning off the, the reactor and removing the um, pearls, you've disturbed the pearls. You've, you've caused biomass to uh, be you know, slough off, break off of the pearls. And invariably, I think that went into the water and all that organic biomass. What happens to organic material is bacteria in the aquarium break it down into ammonia, which goes into the nitrogen cycle, and that becomes nitrate. So that's probably where that nitrate's coming, is from the organic material that was degraded into ammonia and caused a temporary spike in the ammonia in the, in the nitrate levels. I think we, we touched a little bit about that in our last podcast, talking about like when you're turning pumps off and then you turn them back on, like some of that stuff get that's in, you know, that you can't necessarily see gets dislodged. Even though you're cleaning it, it still can get into the system. Right. And, and that's why you'll see of the, the bloom, the, the water go cloudy after a cleaning is there's invariably stuff gets stirred up and it gets released. And that's these nutrients, especially in how phosphate gets trapped in the sediment bed. You stir that up, you're cleaning as carefully as you can, but it, it's not going to be perfect. No, nothing can be perfect that you're not going to cause air to get in there materials to get stirred up and that causes the organics to be uh, subject to degradation by the bacteria. That's what they do. That's what we want them to do. And that's going to cause uh, nitrate via the um, nitrogen cycle. All right. So good, good multi-part questions. <laughs> okay. The next one, and I think we've got a couple of these throughout the course of this, do I need to refrigerate EcoBalance? How about waste away? We would recommend you not refrigerate any of our bacteria except the one and only, and only if you know you're not going to use it for a while. But two different things happen. So specifically with the waste away, EcoBalance, refresh, clear up, those are all the heterotrophic bacteria. They're spore formers. And 
the bacteria are already in the spore form in the bottle. And you can, you know, think of them kind of as a brine shrimp egg. It's, it's not a perfect analogy, but, but we, when we produce, grow these bacteria, after they're grown, we separate the bacteria from the media using a high-speed centrifuge. Then we have this, it's like a paste, very thick porridge paste, which is spread out on trays, shallow trays. And then the whole thing is rolled into the rack. The trays are put on a rack. The rack is moved into a freeze dryer. And we actually freeze dry all the heterotrophic bacteria. We, we Then we have a powder. And the reason is that powder is very stable as long as it doesn't get wet. It's basically stable for years and years and years. And then we can easily dole that out into making the products that we make. And the reason we don't sell the powder is that we don't want people handling, handling the powdered bacteria. But in that powder, these the bacteria, when they're freeze-dried, form these spores. That's what's put into the bottle and freeze freezing them or, or uh, refrigerating them is not going to do anything. It's not going to extend it. In fact, it may have it where the bacteria don't work as fast. So we don't recommend refrigerating any of those products. There's no need to. Their shelf life is in the liquid in the bottles three to five years. Now for the, uh, uh, nitrifiers, you know, the one and only, the, these are not heterotrophs. They do not form spores. And if you keep them in a refrigerator, our studies have shown that basically the clock stops. They're, they're kind of like a rechargeable battery. I've talked about this before. Um, they don't die Killing a bacteria is actually much harder than you think. When you use these soaps and stuff, read the bottle. They, they now have to put that on there. You're washing the bacteria off your hands is what you're doing. You're not killing the bacteria. You're washing them off. Um, Interesting. But yeah, because ki killing a, you know, to, to kill a bac bacteria, you basically have to break open the cell wall. And if, when we want to do that, when we want to get to the DNA, the RNA, you know, the, the inners there to do the genetic analysis, we have to, I mean, one, one way, an old way is the bead beat. We put the back, the sample in a vial with these very small beads and on a high speed shaker, beat the heck out of it internally to try to break open the cell walls. Another way is to heat it up and put this chemical, uh, this soap called SDS in there to break open the cell wall. The cell walls are hard to open, you know, it, and that's why it's just not the easiest thing to kill these things. So obviously, you know, UV light and radiation will do that, but we don't want to use that. Um, so with the nitrifiers, what happens is their cell the way they get through bad times is they produce an, uh, a cryopres natural cryopreservative inside the cell, but they don't form a spore. So when you put it in the refrigerator, they kind of go into hibernation and they slow down. They don't use as much energy because they're not going to divide because they don't have the ammonia. So, you know, the cell's just waiting. They're genetically programmed to wait until they get the conditions they need to divide, which is basically ammonia. 
Um, so they're in that refrigerating them keeps them intact and keeps their cell relatively fully charged for a long period of time. The negative about refrigerating them is that they're not going to work as fast out of the bottle when you put them back into the water. You don't just, uh, it's going to take an extra three or four or five days and most people are in a hurry. So that's why we say don't refrigerate those unless you're, you know, you're not going to use them for six months a year. Um, it's better just to keep all these bacteria in a cool spot out of direct sunlight. So the bottle's not heating up and uh, at room temperature is what we recommend. Good to know. Now, this isn't one of the questions, but you talking about it made me think um, some of the pictures that I've seen from local stores Sometimes I see the products and off the top of my head, I couldn't say what products that it was that they just automatically, okay, it's a bacteria, we're going to store it in the refrigerator. Um, if somebody goes into a store and they need a product and they see those, is it, it's still okay for them to buy it? It'll just work a little bit slower. Oh yeah. There's nothing, there's no harm in it. It's just going to work a little slower. Exactly. Yep. Good to know. All right. What uh, you definitely don't want to do with nitrifiers is freeze them. <laughs> if, if the nitrifying bacteria are froze solid, it doesn't matter whose product. If it's froze solid, the chances are the bacteria are toast. Good to know. <laughs> All right. Well, here's another uh, temperature related question. My waste away was delivered and it got left out in the sun during a hot day, will it still be okay to use? Yes. Uh, the waste away bacteria can tolerate high temperatures. Even the nitrifiers can tolerate high temperatures. Um, I mean, that, that's what's super interesting about the nitrifying bacteria, especially the nitrite oxidizers. The very first representative of the nitrospira genera was isolated from a heating pipe in Moscow. That's why it's called Nitrospira moscoviensis. And it couldn't even be cultured at temperatures lower than 137 degrees. Whoa. And there's nobody keeping their aquarium at that temperature. <laughs> so, yes, it's fine. Uh, don't recommend that you, you know, grab it and immediately plunge it in an ice bath or anything like that. Just put it in a cool place and let the, you know, the water temperature, the liquid temperature come down to root temperature. Um, don't try any fancy ways to, you know, put an ice bath or ice refrigerator or anything like that. Like I said, the bacteria are a lot more resilient or have a lot more resiliency than we generally give them credit for. Indeed. I think my favorite, I guess, realization of that is like, well, you know, bacteria have been around for millions of millions of years. Like they wouldn't be resilient. Yes. And they live in all sorts of, you know, radioactive environments, depths at the ocean. That's why I've said, you know, they're primitive. They can live at the bottom of the ocean in the Mariana Trench, in the, in the vents at, you know, in the Galapagos, you've seen that on TV and stuff. And we would be dead in, in seconds if we were exposed to this stuff. And they're the primitive ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll get back to my list of questions. This one is, can I use Microbacter 7 with Waste Away? Will that hurt the Waste Away? Well, it, 
it won't hurt it. Um, you just want to be careful of adding too much bacteria at once because the bacteria are going to consume oxygen doing their job. And so you can get a bacterial bloom. Um, but to answer that specific question now, there's not going to be any problems with it. It's not going to hurt the waste away. That's for sure. Now, something like along those lines, I was talking to somebody um, on my personal Facebook page the other day about, you know, different products. And they're like, well, how much, how much of it should I add? And I was like, well, I will tell you from personal experience, because I've just gone through a treatment on my tank, like add, and it even says this on the bottles. So a quarter of what you would normally add because it can cloud up the tank. So I know we've said that before, but because I personally just experienced it, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's always easier to add a little bit more or to add it again, rather yeah. than just pour a ton in and then go, Oh, what am I going to do now? And now you're off to the races with aeration and getting the UV working and water changes. And, and all you had to do was read the instructions, start slow, start low, you know, yep. build up a little bit. Exactly. We live and learned. Exactly. Okay. Ooh, this is a good one. What are your thoughts on siphoning the sand bed in a tank? I've heard two different um, thoughts, either to not siphon at all or to let the sand sifters and the cleanup crew do the work or that you've got to do sand sifting or siphoning all the time. Well, again, this is one of those questions that doesn't have a set answer because um, – I mean, I don't know. What do you think? How many people actually have sand sifters in their aquariums? Mm -hmm. I would, I bet you it's not a high percentage. I bet you it's single digit, you know, less really? than that 10. low. No, what do you, I, uh, I don't know. That'd be an, that'd be an interesting survey. I, yeah. Write that down. <laughs> I like that. I want to take notes. But yeah, just because having sand sifters is good because what are they doing? They're keeping the sand from being compact. They're moving the sand around, which exposes the sand to air, and it doesn't let the organics build up. So if you have sand sifters, the, the amount of time or the, how often you have to clean the sand is going to be a lot less than if you don't have sand sifters. And then it depends upon, well, how much are you feeding? If you've got a tank where you're fish only and you're really putting a lot of food in there, a lot of food means a lot of organics and chances are greater that your sand then is accumulating these organics and you don't want that. You, you want to get that out. So uh, no sand sifters feeding a lot. You definitely want to siphon clean that sand a lot more often than a sand sifting tank that isn't fed a lot. I mean, that's kind of the, the range uh, that you would have. But uh, what you want to be careful of is, say you've set up the tank and it's been running a year and you've never cleaned the sand. And now you're thinking, oh, I just read on the forum of the internet, I'm supposed to be doing this. Let's get to work. Well, stop. Be careful of that because the chances are quite high that your sand has got a lot of organics. It's been sitting there for a long time sand 
as you go down through the sand layer, the oxygen is dropping to point there's no oxygen, which means that it's become anaerobic or even agnoxic. So when you start stirring that up, you're going to be releasing things into the water you don't want. So you have to, again, do this by sections, just like we say, start adding a quarter of a dose, not a full dose. You would clean a small section of the area one day, wait several days and clean another section. And over time, and it could be as long as a couple of weeks, clean the sand. But don't just go and clean the whole tank at one time because I can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get a big bloom in uh, bacteria, a drop in oxygen, maybe a release of uh, hydrogen sulfide, and the tank is going to look terrible, and you probably you probably will lose some animals. And we never, never want that. No, you, number one thing is think about how this is going to impact the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so cleaning sand, yes, but again, there, I, and I know people get tired, there's always these uh, what-ifs or buts or things, but... <laughs> That's why biology is fun. Every tank is different and everything's a little bit different. Observe. And uh, if you start seeing black areas, if the sand is bubbling, that's a pretty good sign that you've got hydrogen sulfide or gases in there. And I can almost guarantee you it's not oxygen. Um, <laughs> and so you clean it, but you got to do it slowly and in stages. Yes. And, um, another reason, because I don't know if you have this question. I, I know we get asked a lot is how deep. And I am not a deep sand bed uh, fan because of those reasons. Uh, an inch, you know, inch and a half maximum uh, is what I feel it should be. I'm not a fan of three or four inch deep uh, sand in your aquarium. Interesting. It's funny that this question came up at the time it did. I've been seeing a whole bunch of stuff on social media like over just the past week of um, you know, siphoning the sand and is it good? And somebody, um, actually MetroCat just posted the other day about how, like, yes, she feels that you should siphon, but you don't need to do the whole tank at once. Just do a little bit and each time kind of move your way around the tank as you go. Yeah. I think she's been listening to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we've been listening or it's just good advice. It, it's it just, is. you just clean a little bit the next week, clean it, you know, and just go back like the, the golden gate bridge. As soon as they get to the end, they go back to the beginning and start painting it. You know? <laughs> yep. I always, I always get a sense of satisfaction when I siphon like that, that cloud of, brown that kind of goes up and dissipates like oh yeah i'm doing something good i'm cleaning yeah oh let me get a plug in for clear up at this point though because you (laughs) the marketing people will be happy with us um but yes you've got you know you're cleaning all this you're releasing this uh material and not everything can be degraded you're always going to have this uh, material that can't be broken down any further and it's quite fine and maybe you don't have a fine enough filter for that to move it out of the water so that's what our clear up is for is add that to as a flock natural flocculent to cause those small particles to stick together and then they could be removed by the uh, uh you know, your, your filter pad or whatever your mechanical filter is. All right. Got one more step to add to my process. Oh, we had another siphoning question kind of along the same lines. Um, Would siphoning the sand suck out a lot of the beneficial bacteria or am I okay? 
you are okay. Um, the bacteria, the nitrifying bacteria are stuck to the sand grains or the gravel, whatever the material. They're actually not on the organic material. And the organic material is getting in between the grains and inhibiting water flow. And the back nitrifiers want that and need that water flow. So, no, there, there's actually some academic studies on the rate, you know, the, 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 I don't know what you would call it, sucking rate, you know, the speed at which the water is sucked out and past the, past the grains that dislodge the nitrifiers. And unless you've hooked up some type of huge pump and you'd have to have a huge aquarium to do this because it would just empty your 180 gallon aquarium in seconds. Um, you're in no danger. So siphon away, keep those organics out, and you'll be fine. Now, let me preface this. I do not recommend siphoning your sand or any of your substrate in the first 30 days of setting up your aquarium and adding the bacteria, like, you know, the nitrifiers, like our one and only, because they do need time to stick to these grains whatever your substrate is. So that's why when people uh, want to do a water change in the first 30 days, I'll always say, well, take it from the water column. Don't disturb your gravel, sand, whatever your substrate is, because the bacteria need time to stick to those grains. And once they stick, they start doing their job. That's why on the opposite side, a bare tank, a bare bottom tank with no substrate, always takes longer to cycle it because the bacteria are just don't have the surface area. Yeah. You have live rock, you have whatever in there, but it just is not the same in terms of the surface area that the bacteria need. And they do their job much better when they're stuck or, uh, to a, to a surface. Yep. I'm, I'm glad you put that in there. I was like, well, but hold on. We tell people to take the water from the surface. Yes. And during, you know, if you've got, cause it's a new tank, the kids are feeding, they're overfeeding, you know, stuff happens. It's okay to lightly surface the, or siphon the top of your substrate. I'm talking about getting that, you know, down in there and just sucking everything out, but lightly siphoning the top during the first 30 days to get the organics out. That's fine. Just don't do that deep, cleaning where you're really tumbling the sand or the substrate. Yep. Good advice. All right. Here's another question that we have. I purchased the 16 ounce reef safe bottle of one and only, but I'm having some trouble with it. I've got a Red Sea reefer 750 and run marine pure blocks and spheres with bio balls and my sump. And I'm running a refugium. I haven't had the UV light on since the tank was started about four months ago, and I followed the instructions as the bottle said, but I found that I'm getting readings of ammonia and nitrites. I have four fish, one starfish, and a cleanup crew. I feed once a day, and I use refroids weekly. Well, this is the perfect question for just after uh, talking about bare bottom. Because as I've mentioned, um, these, these what I call engineered medias, uh, the blocks and the balls and stuff like that, they don't 
they're, they're, they're an okay surface for the bacteria, but the bacteria don't just migrate in there. And, you know, they don't run into those things. Obviously, they don't have legs. They can't even swim. Um, and a lot of times people will write us and say, well, you know, I have a bare bottom tank because I like the look or a very thin, thin, just a, a dusting of, of sand. But I've got all these bio blocks in the sump. Well, unless you make the water go through those bio blocks, I can pretty much guarantee you the bacteria aren't in there because water takes the path of least resistance. Just putting a bunch of bio blocks, you're making a floor of bio blocks. Well, the water will just go over the top of them. And they're going to get, uh, as heterotrophs start growing on them, they're going to get slined up. So you need to make, picture a vertical wall that, is from one side to the other of the sump and from the bottom to the top where the water must go through the bio blocks. Now the water can't escape. It can't go around. It can't go over or under because you have this wall of material. And that's a much better way than just putting bio blocks or people say, well, I put bio, my bio balls in a bag and put it in, over in the corner in the sump. Well, you almost might as well not have put it in there, to be to be frank, because you're not making the water. These are these are passive systems. This is not like a big aquaculture system where it used to run where you forced you know, you poured the water through the biomaterial. It couldn't biopass it, or you you sometimes you suck it through or push it through depending on how your system. But you're making the water go through the biofiltration material. In, in most sump situations, we're not doing that. Um, and just laying this material there, it, the water's not going to go through it uh, effectively because basically there's an easier way for the water to go and the water will always take the easier way. Uh, so in this case, especially when you say, the tank is four months old and you still have ammonia. Yep. That, that tells you right there that the bacteria aren't happy. The bacteria should be growing to take care of this ammonia, but they obviously aren't because you have ammonia after four months. And unless that water temperature, which they don't say, but, but very few people keep their water at, you know, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, not, cold water system, um, you're not providing what I call effective filter area. Yeah, you might have put a bunch of blocks in there that have all this filtration area, but if the filtration area is not being utilized, it's not effective. And a four-month-old tank with ammonia tells me that you do not have an effective biofiltration media um, in your tank, and that's what you've got to do. So, immediately rearrange those, the bio balls and the uh, blocks to make the water go through it is what you would need to do. Good to know. I'm thinking about like how my stump is set up and like there's about like a couple different baffles and they're like, oh, it'd be a good place to put them like right near those baffles or even in part of the baffling. Right. Um, and, and then realize and we talked about this, I think, in an earlier podcast, um, the order of things. 
any of this biomaterial, if it's the first thing that the water sees, it's going to become clogged because you've got organics in the water, fish poop and just, you know, all that stuff. So what you need to do is first have a mechanical filter, some type of, a, you know, it can be a simple blue pad, fuzzy pad, but something that can take the big stuff out of the water. And, and then the cleaner, I mean, clean, clean being the less organic material, particulate organic versus dissolved. Dissolved organics, you can see only in the waters, you know, brown or something like that. I'm talking about particulate material. Uh, you want to be able to remove that and clean that mechanical filters often as you need to, and you don't want those particulates to be clogging whatever your biofilter material is. And a lot of times people don't think about that and they just have the bio blocks right as the sump comes in or the bio balls, you know, oh yeah, that, that I had that plate and the water went over it, but the pad was always getting clogged up and I was having to clean it. So I removed it. <laughs> well, hold it. The manufacturer put that pad there for a reason. It's like it's like my oil filter was always getting clogged up in my car, so I took it out, you know, and just put it. <laughs> yeah. When I first joined the industry and went to, uh, uh, we had these uh, open houses where you were in these hotel rooms and manufacturer or distributor sales reps would come, you know, five or six at a time and listen to your products. And I'm, we're talking about the new filter that we came with the bio wheel. This is a long time ago. And this one woman spoke up and she said, well, I don't like any of these Marine land filters. They clog too often. I much prefer brand X because it never clogs. You never have to clean it. <laughs> now I had just joined the industry and I said, well, and I tend to have a big mouth and just said, well, that filter is not a filter. It's just a water pump. It's, it's a piece of junk. If you can't, if you're never cleaning the filter, it's not filtering anything. And she looked at me like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about, but <laughs> yeah. So oh. I digress, but yes, you need to, you need to keep the water clean and you need the water to go through your biological filter in a tank like that. That's just not happening. The evidence is there. A tank should be cycled. There should be no ammonia in a tank after four months. So you, the bacteria, unless you're, unless you're feeding super, super heavy. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're now you get into a little more complicated, <laughs> if you're, if you're feeding super heavy and the pH is dropping and there's no alkalinity and there's water chemistry problems. And this, this happens a lot. Uh, you know, we, we tend a little bit to think about salt water, but in freshwater tanks, this is a big problem, especially if you're keeping, uh, soft water, you know, water without a lot of calcium or magnesium, or you live up in the Pacific Northwest that has very, you know, naturally has soft water and not much alkalinity, not buffering, um, then your pH is going to be low. And that's one of the first questions we'll ask when people say, you know, I can't get my ammonia down. It never disappears or cycling's taking forever. You know, your product is terrible. What's the problem? I'm going to ask, you know, or, or you will ask whoever's, you know, helping people on, it'll say, well, what's your water hardness? That's your calcium and magnesium. Nitrifiers need calcium and magnesium. What's your, your alkalinity, your KH, you know, your, your buffering capacity, because they need that. And then what's your pH. And if your water is 
below pH is below seven and you have no hardness and no alkalinity, that is the worst water quality for the nitrifiers and they just aren't going to work very fast. So yep. once again, it's biology. Uh, you have to provide the right environment for the nitrifying bacteria. Exactly. Exactly. And let me get a plug in here for, uh, I'm doing a, a live um, virtual seminar for the Minnesota Aquarium Society in a couple of weeks. You yep. can go to our uh, webpage and the topic is going to be, and it's going to be primarily towards freshwater. I've done this for saltwater, but secrets to cycling your, you know, your aquarium with emphasis on freshwater. It's going to talk about this, about why, I mean, you've got the physical, they bacteria need a house, but they also need the right environment, you know, water environment. So we're going to be doing a live a Zoom call with questions and answers. It's open to the public and you can go to the Minnesota Aquarium Society to find the link and it'll be a lot of fun. Yep. Thursday, August 5th. Yep. Yep. Uh, five o'clock West Coast, I think. So. Sounds about right. All right. We have a few more questions. I feel like we got, I like this. We get derailed, but it's always like a good, interesting derailment. No, if it's a derailment, it's a uh, walkabout. Then we come back. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Wandering. Wandering. All right. Um, let's see. I've recently purchased some one and only to do a fishless cycling on my new tank. I'm wondering if I can reuse a bottle of ammonium chloride that was opened in 2015 when I cycled a previous tank. Will this still be effective if I use it now? First off. Thanks for being in the hobby for seven years. You have definitely got the uh, bite. You know, it's, yes. it's in your yes. blood now. Yes. Um, and the answer is yes. The ammonia does not go bad. Um, and it'll, it'll be fine to use. It's, uh, there's no reason it would go bad. All right. So, yes. Thanks for being in the hobby and you're good to go. Yep. All right. Here's. An interesting one. Is cyanobacteria bad for the health of the aquarium? I have it growing inside my filters, but not inside the tank itself. Um, the answer is yes, it is potentially because uh, cyanobacteria can release toxins. Uh, you, you just have to, extreme case of this right now is Tampa Bay which is the, you know, marine life is just being decimated by the cyanobacteria that are blooming because of the high amounts of organics and nutrients that are being released into the bay, yep. lack of oxygen, and it just mushrooms. Um, so uh, yes, um, there's no reason to be cultivating cyanobacteria in your aquarium or your uh, filtration. So I would definitely clean that out uh, and get it out of the tank. And, and that can be a problem. Not, you know, maybe not so much it's localized in your filter, but say you have an aquarium where we've got that nice big, you know, purple brown mat, black mat of cyanobacteria, and you start using some type of a chemical or e even maybe our bacteria products to, to kill that. And, you know, that's what that can, as they're dying, 
there's a potential there of them releasing toxic substances that can kill not only your fish, but some of your corals and invertebrates and things like that. So that's why we say you should physically remove as much of that cyano before you start any treatment. I know, get it out of the system, siphon, clean it, net, whatever you need to do, get it out of the system before you start whatever treatment regime you're going to do, because there's a potential that it can release toxic substances and kill them stuff, you know, your animals. Great advice. Yeah, I just did a post actually on one of my pages the other day about the blooms in Florida. It's, I think it was 800 tons of dead sea life that has washed up on their shores. That's yeah, we actually, uh, I don't know if you saw, it was one guy, can't you do something about this, Dr. Tim? Can't you use some waste away? So it's like, I, I, I think I did see that. I was like, oh, yeah. the, the problem isn't so much that we don't know how to fix it temporarily. Yes, you can put bacteria, you can add aeration. The long-term solution though, is that what's causing all this is the runoff, the big phosphate um, lakes they have, you know, the, the, the development around there. And that's what needs to be taken care of. This is kind of a holistic approach. And that's how mostly aquatic ecology is taught uh, now is it's not so much the lake. It's how about the runoff, you know, the drainage area that drains into the lake. Uh, what, what are you doing there? Have you plowed it all up? Are you fertilizing it a ton and things like that? Because all that water's running downhill into the lake and it's just going to counteract whatever you do. And that's the, that's for Tampa Bay, uh, you know, the political solution, you need to solve what's going on around the bay to make the bay uh, cleaner and safer for the animals in the long term. And that's a much harder thing to do, unfortunately. Exactly. You know, I think I saw, I think it's the people from Moat Marine Lab, maybe, that they're trying to, it's like a mix of something in clay that they're trying to spray into the water that they believe will help it. But like I said, I think it's, it's policy changes. I feel that actually need to happen to make an impact. Right. I mean, until you, until you fix all the drainage and all the nutrients and all the pollution that goes into the water, you can, you know, you could come and buy a million dollars of waste away bacteria and sure we could clean up the Bay and next year, the same thing's going to happen. It's just not Tampa Bay. You see this all over, um, where you get these bacteria blooms or, or aquatic nuisance weed blooms and things like that, that, you know, quote, we're never there. Well, yep. they're there because there's an increase in pollution. And yes, you can put a Band-Aid on it and solve it for this season, but maybe it's better to look at a long, and, and it's definitely a lot cheaper in the long run to look at fixing the whole ecosystem that surrounds the body of water whether it's a lake or a bay and that's just uh you know we're humans are not very good at long-term planning <laughs> we're you know we're much better at reacting and running around and trying to f fix a, put the fire out before the fire started instead of uh maybe we should uh clean <laughs> out, you know <laughs> take care of the brush and stuff before the fire starts Exactly. Yeah. We like instant gratification too. Like, oh, there's a problem. Let's fix it now. Yeah. 
Okay, so now we've gotten off our soapboxes. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. One of our last few questions is nitrate processed in an aerobic or anaerobic environments? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So aerobically, that means with oxygen, because you know the, the question was open and processed. So what happens? Well, that's called assimilation. That's what we like to do with the waste away bacteria. The bacteria need nitrate. They need phosphate. They need carbon and that they're going to grow more cells. So in an aquarium, you pretty much have nitrate, phosphate, carbon. You add bacteria. The bacteria have the nutrients they need. They grow and they remove the nitrate from the water. So that's, that's processing and that's done aerobically anaerobically, now the bacteria actually take the nitrate cell or molecule and they convert it to nitrogen gas, N2. Just like ammonia is converted by ammonia oxidizing bacteria to nitrite and the nitrite to nitrate, anaerobically, the nitrate can be reduced, not oxidized, but reduced by bacteria heterotrophs, not nitrifiers, but heterotrophs to eventually dinitrogen gas. But that has to be done anaerobically, which means in a low level of oxygen. So uh, that's called denitrification and much harder to control. It's a multi-step process, just like nitrification. And in most cases, this is even in, in public aquariums where they have full-time staff, the process stops at the intermediate of nitrite because the first step is nitrate going back to nitrite. And even though nitrite is, is relative, it's called in a relative beating up operative word, harmless in salt water, it's still harm, harmful. You know, it's not like you want to have any nitrite in the water. Um, but it usually stops and the nitrite starts to build up if you don't provide, provide the right conditions for the bacteria. And doing anything anaerobically is just much harder be two reasons. If you have too much water, it, you're, you lose the anaerobic conditions and then the process doesn't work. If you don't have enough water and therefore super, super low oxygen, it goes anoxic, which is no oxygen. And then you start producing hydrogen sulfide and all sorts of nasty stuff. So uh, uh, difficult process. If you're interested, I have a YouTube video on a lecture I gave, um, I think it also American, uh, aquatic, uh, A-L-A-A-L-S-O, Aquarium, American Aquarium Life Support Operators Convention. Oh, okay. Yep. I was supposed to go to one of their uh, conventions last year. Very cool. Very cool. I, I like that convention because it's, it's the practical with the uh, kind of the theoretical. So you're actually there. They show you how to cut pipe. This is for people that work at public aquariums. How do you glue pipe? 
you know, how do you cut pipe? How do you service a pump? So it's really hands-on. There's workshops over the three days on that type of stuff, you know, changing a seal in a pump. Well, they don't teach you that in high school, but it's, no. if you're working at a public aquarium, you need to know, you know or a private aquarium, you know, big aquarium, you need to know how to do that stuff. So uh, it's just not the biologist or the curators. It's, it's every, that's the life support people. You know, those people that know how to change a pump and change seals and do electrical and all that stuff that keeps all our animals alive, which they're a super important part. Can't, can't operate an aquarium without them. Nope. And I will say from personal experience, even in the industry, the number of people that you encounter who can do all of those things, I feel is very limited. So if you can get a foot up, definitely worth checking that out. Definitely worth checking that out. Or even in commercial aquaculture, you're out in aquaculture, you know, fish farm somewhere. You don't have time to wait for, you know, the plumber to come or the electrician <laughs> to come. You got to fix it. You got to know that stuff. So, yep. you no, know, it's a great, great three days hands-on uh, practical learning experience. And you can get certifications. You can get like a water quality certification and a life support operator certification, I believe. Yep. Yep. There's tests, uh, written tests and there's, you know, books and it's just super practical on, on water quality. I usually give a talk on water quality, chemistry, biology, and stuff like that. And the idea is to the, the physical, the operators learn a little of the biology and the biology people learn uh, some of the, the physical part about what it is, you know, so you can quickly service that pump or fix that seal or glue that pipe together the right way. So it doesn't leak and things like that. Yeah. So, very cool convention. First one was in your town, Las Vegas at the Mirage years and years ago. Oh, wow. That's crazy. A little bit yeah, of trivia. I still have one of these days. I'm going to get to one of those shows. One of these days. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question that I have, but I think there may be a few more that came in on the info emails. Um, for refresh, can I only use it um, and dose every other day? Or do I need to do more for it to be effective? Well, refresh, you got to be careful with. If you're treating, like if you're doing our step-by-step recipe guide, we recommend that you do it every day for three days in a row. Um, but that's in a case where you're really trying to combat the cyanobacteria or the dinoflagellates. Routine maintenance, I would say you shouldn't really have to add it more than once a week. You, you mean you could add, but again, how much are you adding? A little bit each day can be, can be quite effective, but there's no one right answer just because everybody's tanks is different. But if you if you need to add refresh every day on a continuing basis to an aquarium, I would say there's something wrong. You know, either you've got too many fish and you're feeding too much because that's causing the problem or you or something's wrong with your lighting system. I'm assuming the problem is cyano or algae or just some type of a nuisance organism is run amok. And even our stuff, you know, unless it's the waste away gel where you're just adding a little bit of bacteria, but adding a treatment type of thing every day is just a sign that, that you need to rethink your system or your, your husbandry or the amount of animals that are in the tank. Yep. Good advice. All right. So I think we might All have my questions. There. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, almost an hour. Oh my gosh, it has. Yeah. 
<laughs> There's all sorts of lots of questions, but we'll get to them all. And you, you know, we we love to hear from you, um, and uh, you know, yeah. an- answer as much as we can. Answer as much as we can, and yep. send them in. Contact us on social media. We are happy to answer them and chat with you about stuff. Yep. Don't forget, we've got uh, Minnesota coming up. No new podcast. We've got Aqua Shellas and Reefa Paloozas. Yes. Um, so excited. Yep. And next weekend, you know, I won't be able to make it, but the American Cichlid Association has having their annual convention. Um, yep. you know, so things are getting back in, into the swing of things carefully. Be kind, be safe to each other, though. All right. And yep. uh, we'll get through this. So, anyway, this is uh, Hillary and Dr. Tim. And we definitely appreciate you listening. And please come by and say hi when you can. Thank you very much.